Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at HearstRanch.com. Welcome, everybody. It's Sunday. That means it's the main course. I'm Patrick Martins, your host. We are broadcasting broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant, 261 Moore Street. Uh, we are engineered and produced by Jack Inslee. Jack, are you there? Yes, I am. Did you have a good weekend? I did, yeah. I had a really good weekend. Well, it was a very sad day. Uh, you know, this uh, one of the founders of the Beastie Boys, Adam Yauk, died, and... Uh, yeah. Did you, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I was driving around all weekend, and thankfully Hot 97 was playing a lot of good tribute sets to the Beastie Boys, so it was nice to kind of go back to those songs, listen to them in New York City in the car. He kind of brought rap music, they kind of brought rap music to the suburbs a little bit, and yet they were still respected by their black counterparts, you know, and uh, they signed uh, labels with Russell Simmons and all these guys, so I mean, they were really huge, uh, a huge force, you know, especially three born and raised Jewish New York kids, you know, like myself, um, you know, I always looked up to them and secretly wished I was in the, uh, you got to fight for your right to party video. I was like, God, <laughs> oh, what would I have needed to do to get into that? But anyway, uh, rest in peace, Adam. And thanks for all the, you, you know, know, Patrick, I have to say, and this is, uh, it goes back to the Steve jobs thing where he was uh, a vegan and very stubborn about mm-hmm. it, uh, late in the cancer with Adam, a Tibetan doctor advised him to go vegan. And I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering if that's any sort of pattern. Yeah, I mean, listen, I eat extreme meat. So, I mean, I really hope uh, that something about those proteins help me, that's you know, what I'm hoping prove for, Michael yeah. Pollan wrong. Exactly. My, my whole thing is eat a lot of meat, and that's it. <laughs> and hope for the best. And hope for the best. But um, I did invent, uh, I, I, I came up at a dinner party yesterday with all these food people and academics, and they were all droning on about this and that. And, uh, you know, I brought up uh, Rich Hall Sniglets. He was a Saturday Night Live alum. And, uh, you know, he would always, he came out with books for words that uh you know didn't exist yet but should so everyone one guy was like oh i have a word that i keep writing the atlantic about and i'm always looking for uh, an answer for it you know but no one can ever come up with a word so we're like well what's your word he's like when you get out of a shower and you, you know, you're leaving the bathroom and you realize there's still like a patch of soap, like wet soap somewhere. What do you call that? Ooh. And I was like, residouche. Oh my the God. residue douche means shower in France. I mean, that was a home run hit. And everyone wow. was like, yeah, no, that's okay. I'm like, dude, that is perfect residue. I just so- don't think they want to say it. Well, listen, it's perfect. It, it is, is perfect, the perfect though. word. I can't believe I didn't get more props. So since then, just to prove, you know, to account to myself, you know, because I got dissed for, for that brilliant one, I did come up with one uh, brilliant word, also requiring French. Um, you know that part of the cheese? It's not quite the Rhine, but it's not quite the cheese. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like that little middle zone that has its own texture and this and that. I call it the... Plage du fromage. 
which is the beach of the cheese beach, which is absolutely also genius. And no one gives me props for this. Uh, I also came up with the idea for the movie Babe before Babe, but whatever. Listen, wow. we have a big show. Um, we're going to have Dorothy Can Hamilton on, and then we're going to have Margot True on. So um, I'm really excited about the show, and uh, we'll be right back with Dorothy Can Hamilton, founder of the French Culinary Institute. Well, this is a really real honor to have Dorothy Kahn Hamilton in studio. Hi, Dorothy. Hey, Patrick. I just want you to know you're so important. We foregoed what, uh, our introduction. You know, Jack and I usually do a week in <laughs> yeah. review, but we are so excited that you are in the studio and four days away from premiering your first episode on Heritage Radio Network. Oh, gosh, I'm so excited to be here. First of all, everyone, if you've never seen this studio, it's priceless. You know, <laughs> it should be on a MasterCard commercial. Uh, <clears throat> but Patrick uh, asked me to uh, do my chef story, which was a PBS uh, mm-hmm. series, maybe some of you know, that aired back in 2007, 2006, where I interviewed 27 of the top chefs in America. And it never made it to radio. And now we're going to do the you same You finally concept. made it to the big leagues, Dorothy. This is the right league. <laughs> this is what the chefs listen to, real hardcore foodies. So we're going we're gonna to give you a lineup every Wednesday at noon, uh, Eastern Time. And uh, I hope you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, and of course, uh, now in, during this show, today's episode, we're going to, uh, you know, do a little brief, you know, overview on some of the things Dorothy's been involved with in her career. Because, of course, as people, most people should know, but in case you don't, the Heritage Radio Network is built as an archive. So you can do a search for Dorothy and our show will come up and then all the other shows where she's been mentioned will come up. So, you know, it's a real kind of resource, we think, almost a library of Congress for the Green Movement. (laughs) So um, I'll start my interview, Dorothy, first of all. You know, again, it's an honor for you to be here. So I like to introduce you when people are like, who's Dorothy? In case they don't know, they must not be in food if they don't. But I'm like, she's been involved in four major social movements. I mean, really, mostly food, but food technology, lifestyle. So I'd like you to give me a brief synopsis of each of these. So let's start with Apex Tech. Oh, gosh. Well, we're sitting in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Brooklyn, and my father started Apex Technical School. Wow. Which, you know, trains, uh, and still there today on 6th Avenue, 19th Street, and trains air conditioning mechanics and Mm -hmm. welders. And anyway, I was president for 20 years. I got out of the Peace Corps in 1974, and it was a worse recession than what we see now. And I could only go to work for my father as a receptionist. And I worked my way up to president, and I fell in love with the students. Mm -hmm. You know, you give people a career, it changes their life. And that's what we, and it was the inspiration for starting the French Culinary Institute. Not air conditioning, Mm -hmm. cooking. Mm, But six months and into the field. I had to start with Apex Tech because as a born and raised New Yorker, um, during, I guess it was like 10 a.m. to noon, 
that commercial ran in between every commercial. You know, at every commercial it was running. I always remember in particular the Munsters, which when I didn't go to school, uh, you know, I would watch her during the summer. And the famous line is, we can't make the first call. You've got to call us. And uh, I always used to, we always used to talk about that in school. So then to meet you years later was really, really interesting. So that is how it became, uh, the French culinary became that. But we'll get to that in a second. So another major movement you were involved with, and this had the likes of Julia Child and Robert Mondavi involved. It was the American Institute of Wine and Food. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the beginnings of, or your role in that organization. Well, the first week we were open as the French Culinary Institute, this tall woman came in and she was Julia Child and she became my fairy godmother. She really did help me in the, you know, we started at FCI 28 years ago. And um, how did she help? How did she help? She put me on Good Morning America. Hmm. Then uh, she knew the quality of the school, and she sent students there all the time. Then she turned to me and said, Dorothy, you have to get involved with the AIWF. And boy, did she push me. I wound up being chairman. Oh, brother. And, um, but I had the distinct honor of being able to talk to her every morning. Hmm. And the funniest story, I, for two years, I, call, I talked to her at 9 o'clock every morning. And, you know, and we talked about the AIWF and the challenges it was facing. And I remember one day I called up and I said, good morning, Julia, it's Dorothy. And she said, no, it's Dorothy. And I, I said, no, Julia, it's Dorothy. And she goes, no, it's Dorothy. And, and I thought, she's losing it. Well, I didn't realize Julia had a sister named Dorothy who spoke just oh. like her. <laughs> it was like, who's on first? Oh, brother, that is so funny. Did Meryl Streep do a good job of... Uh Excellent. Actually, the Washington Post did a private screening for myself and Jacques Pepin and a few other close friends of Julia. And uh, when it was finished, they said, so what do you think? And Mm -hmm. nobody spoke. We all had tears running down our face because it was so like her. But Jacques just said, Julia would have hated it. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, well, because I think the parts about Julia and Paul were absolutely accurate, but the interweaving with the other book would have, we didn't think was so appropriate because this is the way people are going to remember it. All right. So this is a really apex tech, especially for born and raised New Yorkers, American Institute of Wine and Food. You were the chairman of the board. Now, James Beard Foundation. I mean, James Beard is... Uh, what, with Julia Child, the premier name for food in American history, right? Kind of thing? Or close? Oh, uh, he's the father, no doubt. Father, and she's yeah. the mother. Yeah. You know, and they both embraced uh, cuisine. He on the American regional, you know, products. And, and he was a terrific cook. Uh, and Julia, you know, really can, uh, put in a canon the French classics for Americans. And so, that, and you know, Jim helped Julia when she first oh, really? came when here. She, so he, he, her. he had a TV show, and people don't know that. Hmm. And he was the toast of New York and knew all the foodies here. And when she came with her book, you know, he introduced her to everyone. So, so what did you do for the James oh, Beard well, Foundation? James, well, I think I, I'm a little bit of a fixer-upper. I have an MBA. And um, with AIWF, it had reached a, a difficult patch financially. And so Julia and Bob and Davi asked me if I would chair it and help that. 
And then what happened, uh, James Beard, many years later, hit a difficult patch, too. And Jacques Pepin was the honorary trustee. And so he said to me, Dorothy, can you come and help us? And so along with Thomas Keller, Charlie Trotter, and I have to say American Express, um, we really uh, pulled it out. And then I had the great honor of talking to who I used to call Charlie Thomas, because we almost talked every day during that period. And they really helped pull that out. So, you know, uh, these are great organizations with great missions. And this uh, this profession is so generous. Mm-hmm. And so you get the very top people really giving their time and effort and, and names behind it. So I can't I, – they made me become chairman because I was located in New York. But mm-hmm. um, then we hired Susan Ungaro, and it's become the uh, great foundation it is today. And then, of course, I saved the best for last, Slow Food USA. Oh, my God. That's how I met you, Patrick. (laughs) Well, of course, you know, people don't realize that we have many deans at the school. The San Francisco Chronicle just called us the Mount Rushmore of deans. Uh, But Alice Waters was a dean at the uh, French Culinary Institute for five years on sustainability, a little bit ahead of the curve before it became a household name. And uh, she was equally involved or more involved with Slow Food and... uh, uh, Slow Food was based out of Italy, and she wanted to bring a much stronger presence. And it it had been here. I remember 28 years ago it had been here. God, I remember that guy. That guy. He made my life so difficult because it started and failed. So, of course, the Italians didn't want to retry. The Americans were sick of it. People I like know. Florence Fabricant, she was like, don't come to me with Slow Food. Although she was one of our early supporters. But you know what? Alice did the smartest thing she ever did. She found this charming, smart, uh, really proficient young guy to take the mantle. And his name was Patrick Martin. You're looking at him, baby. <laughs> and, and and that's how we got to know each other. Because Alice yes. said, Dorothy, can you find a space and help them? And so we were housed together for a little while. This not, is the way know, I remember figure, that not, story. Yes. It's The slow food was lodged into this really small part of my home apartment and it was starting to grow and grow because everyone was learning about this so it was a real nightmare i mean interns were sitting on my couch and things like that you know doing mailings and this and that and you saved the organization by actually giving it a physical address and it wasn't always easy for you to find the space because of course your school was growing and this Mm. and that this is right you know uh september 11th i believe right in that period so a lot of people were leaving their work and coming to the school you guys Mm. were growing Mm. and uh we were like Please don't throw us out onto the street, but you would always find us a little section on some other floor. We put you in a closet. Come on. No, listen, <laughs> you know, we felt don't great. Don't give me that much credit. <laughs> well, that is a fascinating history. And uh, now, next, we're going to come back and uh, after the break and talk about the challenges of opening a school and a little bit about the International Culinary, Culinary Center. And then finally, the new show.
first ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Oh, I love that song. Brian's very talented. Steve has Brian sometimes. Uh, Brian, the guy who sang that song, was actually the officiant at my wedding to Ann Saxelby. He's a poet, uh, you know, magician with words. And Steve Hurst sometimes has him go around with his guitar. And if he's feeling like it after a drink or two, he's like, Brian, play. And it can be in the most weird restaurants where you wouldn't expect a guy to take out a guitar. But he's so good. I'll and tell he, you, Patrick, that, that Hurst Ranch commercial gets stuck in my head sometimes throughout d- the week. Does it? Yeah, yeah it it's just such does, a catchy yeah. song, and it's so simple. Well, the music's great, but his voice is fabulous. Brian Kenny is an awesome, <laughs> awesome guy. So um, anyway, we are now uh, still in studio with Dorothy Ken Hamilton, and uh, we just talked about her history. But the main thing is she is the owner and founder of the International Culinary Center, also an extension of the French Culinary Institute. So what was the hardest challenge of opening a school back in the day when you first started? Well... You know, I had been the president of Apex Technical School, and everyone knew it like you did, and um, for air conditioning, welding, and whatever, you know, the commercials, and uh, this was part of an accredited school. So we opened, as the French Culinary Institute, a division of the Apex Technical School. Because you need accreditation, right? Because you can't just be giving out diplomas. How does that work? Oh Well, you have to be licensed by the state education department, and then eventually you get um, accredited by a national accrediting association. And then you're recognized by the U.S. Department of Education federally. And then students can qualify for student financial aid to mm. come to your school. So, so it's it, very important. It is very important. Is it true that Bobby Flay, to get into your school, had to get into Apex Tech? No, he didn't have to get into Apex Tech. When we started, he was in the very first class in 1984 at the French Culinary Institute. And it hadn't been finished building, you know, then down on in Soho on Grand and Broadway. And so he had to come to Apex Technical school uh, to enroll so uh, nobody went screaming over him when he was 19 years old and his father brought him in who taught the first class uh actually the chef Antoine Schaefer's uh, what happened was I went to Paris and I picked the top professional cooking school of Paris and they had a two-year program and we took the six-month total immersion format that my father did for Apex. Hmm. He had worked in the Navy, you know, and he, during World War II, and they did everything total immersion. So when he came back, he opened this school for returning GIs hmm. in a total immersion. So we were experts in total immersion, and I applied that to cooking. That's why the FCI and international culinary programs are six months long, mm-hmm. and you can, and then you are job ready to go into a, a restaurant. And here at Roberta's, we we found a whole kitchen full of uh, yeah. Well, I'm FCI sure that grads. happens wherever you go, where they're like door. <laughs> Oh, my God. And you're like, who are you? No, because so many students. This is my question. How many students have come through your school? 22,000. 22,000. Jack, that is a tag. (laughs) That is 22,000 and counting. And and counting. But you know what? You know what's very sweet? Uh, Antoine Schaeffers came over from Paris to be our first uh, teacher. And he really knocked the sense into a young 19-year-old Bobby Flay. And for the first time in 15 years, he came back just two weeks ago and we were having lunch at Lake Cole, and he said to me, how's Bubby? And mm. I said, hold on. And I 
I got him on my cell phone, and I said, and he answered. And I said, Bobby, it's Dorothy. Guess who's sitting with me? Antoine Schaefer. He says, I got to talk to him. And he, he, <laughs> he was just so still in awe of Antoine. And Bobby, let me tell you, is one damn good chef. Yeah. He really is. I, th- I don't think people, well, he's an iron chef, but people should know he's an incredibly well-respected chef. He's an chef. underappreciated, I think, of the he big is. guys. You don't really think of him quite like you might Batali or, but, you know, Danielle. But you, you really do hold him in high esteem. That's interesting. Well, tell us about some of these chefs uh, that you've come to know over the years, and we'll transition into talking about your show and, and what it's going to be about. I mean, this was originally a PBS special, right? Well, Chef Story, Chef Story was. The, the people that do Inside the Actor's Studio came to me, and they said they had an idea for uh, cooking uh, inside you know, the Actor's Studio and wanted to know if I knew anyone who would be good to host it. You're like, you're looking at it. Well, you know, I, I threw out a few names and then I said, you know, I think I'd be pretty good. And so they gave me a test and uh, I was pretty good. So they, I got the show and it actually went into 92% of the PBS markets. Wow. And chefs are, everyone who's seen it has said, when are you going to do the next one? And I said, when you give me $2 million. <laughs> so, well, you know, that's thank the problem you for with doing PBS. it for only 1.5 <laughs> with us. Okay. <laughs> but um, now you have all these great chefs. Now, many of the chefs you've come to know actually uh, come and become deans or professors at well, your school, right? None of the deans went to our school. Dan Barber went to the school. David Chang went to the school. But they are, they're young. The ones we have, I, I think, are just icons. You know, we have Jacques Pepin, Andre Soltner, the chef owner of Lutes, uh, Alain Seyac, who was Le Cirque, um, Jacques Torres, I, I don't think I have to say who he is. Cesare Casella, you know, is the dean of um, Italian. And when we opened our California school outside of San Francisco, David Kinch and Emily Lucchetti are our deans out there. Mm-hmm. And our latest dean that we announced this week uh, is none other than Jose Andres. Mm. And we're going to have a Spanish program. And so uh, the San Francisco Chronicle just said we're the Mount Rushmore of deans. So yes, I, and Alan are. Richmond. Oh, sorry. Alan Richmond's our dean of journalism. Oh, very, very interesting. I was uh, I told this story last week, but uh, Peter Jennings, who was always a very forward thinking guy talking about diet and obesity and food, he did a story on the heritage turkeys. So Alain Sayak was chosen to be the chef. And all Alain had to say was this turkey is delicious. Delicious. They're like, just say that. So it's like action. He's like, this turkey is something good. They're like, cut, cut. <laughs> just say turkey good. He's like, got it. Action. Uh, the, the turkey is so many things. And they're like, ah, oh, and they had to do more. And I was like, God, he's lived in the States for 50 years and still speaks, you know, three words of English. But it is a very, um, he was very talented. And no, he, he conquered us. the English. You know how he did it? He married Arlene Sayak. Uh, Feldman, Feldman from Degusti Bus. So oh, now his English nice. is perfect. <laughs> I do want to ask you, he's a hero of mine, and I think he was involved in our early meetings, Michael Batterberry. How oh. did you and him work together during his career? Oh, my gosh. Michael uh, was the legendary founder with his wife, Ariane, of Food & Wine magazine way back, way back. And he truly sparked the food revolution here. He, did. he discovered all these chefs, and he gave them a voice through that magazine. And then they sold it 
to American Express, but they were still anxious. They were Renaissance people. They've written 27 books on other topics. But then they opened Food Arts because they really wanted to get into chefs. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael, discovered, like Julia, he, he was looking for the young talent coming up and wanted to support them. So when I opened the school, you know, I was lucky to base it in New York City because all these fabulous people were here. And so he was a true guiding light. He could put things in context for me. I'm a little girl from Brooklyn, you know. I'm not, I had never eaten at Lutes until Andre, you know, became involved. So um, I, he, he, is, he is an icon that people don't know about. And I think uh, Michelle Nishan, Dan Barber, all of these people would tell you with tears in their eyes that he was their mentor. Yeah. Well, 100%, I can say the same thing. And, um, well, it's very interesting. So the show, uh, we can look forward to Jacques Pepin. Oh, Jacques Pepin next Wednesday. Is your first guest? Wow. Yep, yep. And uh, we're going to mix it up. We're going to have young chefs. We're going to have the iconic chefs. um, And we might have a few interesting people who have opinions about chefs. I think that there are observers in this world that can shed some light. And I would hope that people can uh, write in or email in or call in and ask us some questions and even give me some ideas on who you would like to have. Because you can get them. I can get get them. And I travel a lot. So I'm going to... I'm going to go around with my little microphone and interview people on the fly. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I can't wait to listen to your first show and um, and all the shows after that. What do you that. want to ask Jacques? <clears throat> what do I want to ask Jacques is... Um, you know, maybe does he feel that the uh, French who started everything in this country and everywhere are now there's a backlash reaction where they're underappreciated? Oh, OK. We're going to ask that. OK, good. <laughs> so um, anyway, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to hear the show. Jack, uh, we'll cut to break and we'll be right back with Margot True. Well, here we are back. God, what an interesting lady. Yeah, the French Culinary Institute is like, uh, it's like uh, those stables where old thoroughbred horses are sent after they've competed all these years, you know? And it's also kind of like ESPN, where ex-warriors, ex-sportsmen can like graduate to the the microphone and, and the booth, you know? It's a real nice second life for so many chefs, you know? Their restaurant closes and then they have a place at... At, uh, with Dorothy. Anyway, I'm very excited Dorothy was on. I'm very excited Margot True is here in studio. Welcome, Margot. Thank you. It's been, I've known you since the uh, early slow food days. So that's 1998, 2000, somewhere in there, back when I believe you were with Saver Magazine. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I remember meeting you standing in the middle of this huge slow food pavilion. Yeah. I stood out. Well, it's because I kept having them shine that light on me. That was probably the reason. <laughs> but you have just come out. Well, you're the editor in chief of Sunset uh, Magazine, which is a very popular and comprehensive, interesting food magazine. Um, when did that start? Well, actually, you're very kind, but I'm the food editor. Oh, food editor. <laughs> when did I, uh, you uh, start with Sunset? I started in, well, about six years ago, so okay. 2006. But you did, and you can't credit anyone else, although you had help from the staff of Sunset Magazine, you did write a book called The One Block Feast. That's right. An uh, Adventure in Food. 
from yard to table. And I was looking through the book, and um, you know, I really love the idea of feasting, you know, and and gluttony. Um, and actually, I think diets would be a lot more successful, and if they built their entire argument around when you could pick out. Yeah, I and you agree. can order like four dinners in a row all on one night, and that can happen once every month or once every three months, and build it all towards that. And then the other twenty-eight days are build up towards something special, rather than you know detracting, uh, yeah, starving. Yeah, sense of anticipation. Yeah, gluttony exactly. is a good thing. So it's a very very interesting book, and I'm uh, I, I'm always saying on this on this radio show the last thing the world needs is another recipe book, and so you know I was like going to concentrate the interview more on Savur and Sunset and your work through through the years. But when I read One Block Feast, I was really taken by how the book was divided. So has anyone ever done a recipe book like this? You know, divided in those categories, told in that way. Well, not that I know of. There are certainly a whole lot of seasonal cookbooks out there that are, you know, spring, summer, winter, fall, which we did. But the difference is that we made every single ingredient. And you, you ended with the big feast. Yes, so there was always a project connected mm-hmm. to the recipes, right? Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. Well, to me, the interesting thing about this book is that it has, you know, around 100 recipes um, that are all t- totally doable with stuff you buy at the store, the farmer's market. But if you want to go really deep, you can learn how to grow each of these fruits and vegetables. There's gardening instruction in this, in this book, too. And you can learn how to make each of the condiments and all the other things that are associated with that meal. So basically what we did was, because I'm not a gardener, I I did not quite understand the full meaning of the term garden to table. Mm. So when I moved to Sunset and saw, you know, all of this land everywhere and all all these fruits and vegetables just growing as landscaping, I thought, well, why don't we start with the menu and then grow everything we need for a menu. That would be really interesting. It would be fun. It would be a different way to cover local eating. Because what's more local than your backyard, right? And you're so. not even including everything. I mean, the cheese, the beer. I mean, oh, we're yeah. going to get to this in a bit. But you were really talking about the whole menu, A to Z. The whole menu. So we sat down with the garden department um, and worked out what you could actually grow in the summer. Because I had just come from New York. So I really thought you could grow an avocado tree in a few months. And that's, you know, kind of ridiculous. <laughs> So we hashed out the menu, and uh, so we had the fruits and vegetables. We knew what we would grow. But then, you know, I, I was realizing it was going to be like gossamer, this menu. If it was just fruits and vegetables, obviously we needed some protein so, um, and beyond beans, you know. So that's what led us to get chickens for eggs. And then we started making cheeses because we wanted to flesh out the menu a little further. And, uh, and we realized we needed a cooking fat. So we thought about corn and realized how much corn it would take to make corn oil. And plus we wanted to eat the corn. So then we thought about peanuts. They don't grow so well in Northern California. So then I realized we had all these olive trees just in the landscape, including one that was in this garden area that we'd planned. So that's what led us to make olive oil. I'm surprised you haven't. You didn't start with the liquor before all this manual labor and make the beer first. But uh, this is all done in the garden of the Sunset Magazine yard, right? Kind of. That's thing? right. So I like this book because I mean, it, it had. First of all, you list all the herbs mm-hmm. and how to plant them mm-hmm. and their name and how to how to get them. So that's a real kind of do-it-yourself component to a recipe book. You actually really empower the people to. 
how deep to yeah. put it into the soil, you know, oh, all yeah. these things that are often the questions that people have. It's making a menu really from scratch, really from mm-hmm. scratch, like from the seed. So let's talk about New York City bee, I mean, uh, bee culture, because you started Beehive. I always think New York City bees are the most disgusting animals because what they're pollinating is like urine infested trees from my own Scottish terriers. I'm like, I don't want any honey from Manhattan or Brooklyn. But um, no, I always joke with my friends who have beehives. But uh, tell us about starting a hive. Oh, right. Well, we were... um the people who formed Team B, because basically we realized that we were going to have to form teams just to do this menu. Um, plus, you know, all of us have day jobs and most of us have families. So we divided up as a way of strategizing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the way we pulled it off. And so Team B was comprised of uh, five or six people initially, all of whom were really afraid of bees. <laughs> oh, really? We were only doing it to get the honey. We just, we had to have dessert, you know, and what else were we going to do? We couldn't grow sugar cane. Overcoming your deepest fears for sweetness. Yes, yes. <laughs> for the sake of sweetness. <laughs> for the sake so of you sweetness. did? You ordered the bees? So, well, we didn't order them because we were already way behind schedule. I got this idea in like May and we wanted to have oh. this dinner in August. So we had to start with what's called a nuke. Um, which means it's a hive that's already been introduced to its queen. So they've already kind of gotten a leg up on the season of honey production. So So you you shipped the whole hive? No, we drove two hours away to this master beekeeper who also gave us a class at the same time that he gave us these bees. And he was this great guy. He was, you know, a former flower child. And I called him on the phone. He goes, I told him we were terrified of bees. And he says, you know you give me two hours and I'll shift your paradigm. Oh man. It was so great. And did he? He did. He totally did. Because what happened was we got there to this beautiful, gorgeous pine encircled meadow. It was cinematic and the air smelled of honey. And we went over to the hives and he said, you're not going to put on gloves. I'm like, what? You know, And he showed us how to move with the bees real still, like you're practicing Tai Chi, Mm. and to keep your voice low and gentle, just like this. And after 20 minutes or so, we were holding bees in our bare hands, thousands of bees. Mm. We were, I I myself was probably holding a few hundred in my two cupped hands. And it was like, it was as though you were holding electricity. So is that, that the feeling? advice? Instead of running into a pond uh, with the straw, like in the cartoons, are you just supposed to remain super slow? Or are there certain times where that will not work? Well, if the bees start after you, then you got to run. And you have to run through foliage, like through underbrush, because right. that apparently really confuses them. Our bees have never attacked us because we're respectful around them. But should it happen, yeah, run like hell. <laughs> So tell us about uh, cheese. Was the cheese any good? And I, the, my mm-hmm. big question is, after doing all these things, did you come to the realization with any of these products uh, products that you made, like that sometimes it's better to leave it to the professionals? Oh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yes. Cheese is not one of them, though. Okay. Uh, sometimes, well, obviously, we have so many amazing artisanal cheeses now in the States. We're so lucky. Um that yes, by and large, I would purchase cheeses. The one thing that I would consistently make myself, especially if I didn't live near a good store, is ricotta. Because mm-hmm. it's so easy to make, and it's so delicious, and it's best when it's just made. So, um, you know, the cheese making, when we started out, we did not have any kind of dairy animal. So it was one of the quote-unquote imports we allowed ourselves. As long as we were going to transform it into something else, mm-hmm. we we chose maybe eight or nine foods 
over the course of this whole project that we would make into something else, into the end ingredient. So we brought in Strauss milk from Strauss Dairy, organic milk, and we made seven different cheeses with it mm. you know, over the course of you know a year and a half or so. Fresh cheeses. Fresh cheeses. Well, no. Actually, we, we made Gouda, too. Mm. Howda, if I'm going to be really correct about it. And uh, you know, got a little cheese press, and it, it was great fun. And by that time, we'd actually acquired a cow. Oh, really? So, yes, a Jersey cow named Holly. <laughs> and so we were able to use the milk of this Jersey cow to make uh, cheese, and, and it was awesome. Fresh milk, which I've learned, you know, if you're really into raw milk, that's what you call it. You call it fresh milk versus cooked milk. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So did your beer come out good? Two of them did. One of them didn't. Oh, really? And unfortunately, the one that didn't Caused was the one... Caused Lockjaw on someone? No. <laughs> no. Oh, I thought that's what you were going to say. <laughs> no. It just uh, tasted and smelled uncannily like bathroom cleanser. Oh, no. Oh, it was so disappointing because, you know, each you of these... You so long. We worked so... We, we, you know, it was like, well, it takes six weeks to make a beer, but this particular one had taken a year and a half because we grew the barley and the wheat and the hops. Well, listen, anytime you feel that kind of regret, just think about that English team whose whole goal was to send a satellite and a landing mechanism onto Mars, and uh-huh. it just failed. Oh, After however many trillions of dollars in the whole team, like it never sent a single message back. So it's not quite so bad, but it must be very disappointing. Well, thank what you, went Patrick, wrong? That does help. Well, what went wrong was actually the wort, you know, the sweet liquid that you create from the grains. You know, we successfully grew the wheat and the barley. We harvested tons of hops. The hops were gangbusters. They were awesome. Um, And dried them, malted the grain, you know, ground the grain, all of this, and successfully made the beer. But after we'd produced it and it was fermenting, I think we were overly enthusiastic about racking it because we wanted it to be nice and clear. And every time you rack, there's a potential that some little beastie will creep in there. And um, I think, you know, it was obvious that something did. Something did. did. Can hops be used for any other things other than beer? Oh, yes. That's a stupid question for me. But I mean, like, what is it often used as other than beer? Well, back in the day, it was used to stuff pillows because it has a sedative effect. Really? Apparently, yes. And um, also used, well, as tea, you can brew hop tea, Mm. which is, you know, bracing, to put it mildly. and people are throwing hops all over the place now. I just had a hop cheese the other day. Oh, really? Cheese flavored with hops in southern Oregon. Mm-hmm. How did your vinegar come out? Great. Really? Now that's How like long an a process. Ent- is that? Oh, that takes about. Hmm, I'm going to say a couple months. So give us the headline steps for making vinegar at home. Okay, you obtain a mother of vinegar, which is a cellulose cloud in which the acetic acid. The acetobacter, acetic acid-producing bacteria, they hang out in this, and they also produce it. It's a byproduct of the conversion of wine to vinegar. So you obtain this mother, which looks like a big old slimy piece of bologna, (laughs) um, but you get used to it. And we got ours from Paula Wolfert, the cookbook author, and she estimates it's about 40 years old, uh, originated in France, was brought to her by a friend. Anyway, you get a little piece of this, and then you just feed it a mix of water and wine. And within a few days, you start smelling vinegar, hmm. and it just keeps converting. And then you, you, you feed it more and more until you can feed it straight wine. And then every time you have a glass left over in your bottle of wine, you just pour it in there. And it makes incredible vinegar, very strong, very fruity, intensely delicious. So, wow. And uh, 
was olive oil very uh, to make the olive oil that was that exhausting? I mean, is that a lot of labor, manual labor? I mean, well, it would have been actually. That was our biggest sadness during oh. this whole project. At sunset, there are twenty-one olive trees. We were going to focus on the one that's in the garden. It's approximately forty feet high loaded with olives and we sent them off to be tested to see what variety we had because these were planted 50 60 years ago and we sent them to a wonderful store called the olive source in sonoma and the woman who runs it called back and said um well they're redding picholine which is a relatively rare variety and you will make great olive oil from this but you have the worst maggot infestation i have ever seen oh. So, and you know, technically you can press olives with a certain proportion of maggots. maggots. It's actually, the technical term is grubby in the trade, but I didn't want to make grubby olive oil. How disgusting. That's pretty embarrassing. I mean, if you were to serve that, how many people came to the feast ultimately? uh, We had about eight for that first one, eight to Mm ten. Now, tell us something, uh, last question about the book. Tell us something we don't know about raising chickens, now that there's this whole movement to put Mm. chickens in the backyard. And actually, chickens, if I was uh, was saying this earlier uh, this weekend, if there's one food I would not or one protein I would not trust at all to the commodity system. I mean, listen, mm. if someone wants to go to McDonald's, but to have a chicken McNugget, that's really the lowest. I mean, those chickens, I mean, a third of them oh. arrived to the slaughterhouse already injured. No, it's I mean, terrible. that's a crime on the genetic level, even before they're, you know, confined in a, in a barn. Um, mm. So there's this big movement about raising chickens at home. Tell us some of the key lessons you've learned uh, hurdles you had to overcome well there were it was relatively hurdle free i have to say raising chickens is a breeze mm-hmm. they are so easy to, you have to sort of take good care of them when they're little and have no feathers and are helpless and adorable and all that but once they have feathers you know they're good to go you just have to protect them that's the main thing you from have predators. to from predator everything wants to eat a chicken how big just, a cage do they need each chicken needs about 10 square feet so square feet. yeah so we you know they had a we had six chickens. We have three now. They've basically died of old age and being egg bound. That happens to chickens. Um, but, you know, it's not such, it's about the size of your studio hmm. where we're sitting right now. It's not that big a space, and the house sits at one end of it. But we enclose the entire thing with a roof uh, and good, sturdy, not chicken wire because chicken wire is easy to get through, actually. Yeah. And you always have to dig the fence way below soil level yes. because animals dig yeah well very very interesting we're going to take a brief break and then come right back and ask a couple of uh you know big picture sustainable food movement questions before we wrap up so we'll be right back with margo true It's, uh, I always love having people of your ilk, you know, your knowledge, because, uh, you know, I always, especially from the West Coast, because I always say this, you know, East Coast, West Coast, you know, Alice Waters, you know, and in that group kind of focus the sustainable movement in America 
in Northern California. And I argue that the Roberta's guys in this radio station and a bunch of other people in Brooklyn are kind of like pulling it back. So I always like playing devil's advocate, you know, with people and uh, just hearing what their hardcore opinions are. So uh, who has time? I mean, this is like me being a Fox News guy, but uh, (laughs) who has time to do all this? I mean, what do you answer to that? And, you know, part and parcel with that, is this a white movement in a way, you know, or how how do you explain the whole elitist issue? And then, you know, I don't think it's a white movement at all. I think that it's a failure of the imagination and a failure to look at what's really possible, that it's seen as that. There's a place called City Slicker Farms in Berkeley that has found the funds to start backyard gardens in 200 low-income family homes. And these people are living out of their gardens. It's awesome. Very good. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's not really, I mean, everyone should do it. I mean, do you save money doing it? Yes, you can. Really? Because most people say you in the end don't really. If you have good advice, if you have good gardening advice and you are given the right tools and you learn how to do it from a mentor, you can save our garden editors estimated... $600 $600 a growing season. Hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Six to 700. Yeah. So question number two, uh, this is part Fox, part heritage. Uh, when does local not necessarily mean better or does it always with all foods? That is a great question. Uh, to my mind, it is the food of first resort. I believe you should always try to eat locally. But then there are some specialty items that I consider treats, like Parmigiano-Reggiano. Nobody can make it except the northern Italians. It just is a fact. Mm. No one can do it as well. So I think that there are some foods that should be reserved for special occasions, and they're wonderful. And no one should give up anything just out of principle, I think, on a permanent basis. But it's how you live your life routinely, I think, that counts. So now I know about the famous farmers like Elliot Coleman, who's in Maine and can still do everything that everyone else does wherever they are, you know, even in northern Maine. But does the sustainable food movement and the, for instance, your work in One Block Feast, is it also embracing northern Minnesota in its words? Well, we have a, a map on our website that shows how to adapt the, the crops that we're talking about in this book to any growing region, with exceptions. Olive trees are not going to grow in northern Maine. But uh, you can, with the aid of hoop houses and root cellars, not all of it, but some of it. But then there are things that are special to northern Maine. You know, that that's what you should focus on, is what your ground is going to give you, what your patch of earth. So now talking a little historically, we have uh, five more minutes. Um, What was the best story you ever covered for Sever Magazine back in the day? Oh, man, that was a good time. It was a good time. Elliot Coleman, right? Was yeah, the... Coleman, Dorothy Kalins, Christopher Hersheimer, Melissa Hamilton. These are all big names. Oh, yeah. You know, we were we were a really good team. We really were. We all got along. We all we saw the world the same way. How did it break up? Uh, well, you know, there are just opportunities arise and people drift off to explore other parts of themselves and to do other kinds of work. It's just... It's how it's how you grow as a human being and as a as a professional. Well, what do you what 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 was the lesson or the story or the interaction that you think about most that I from think your server or the thing you learned them learn there? 
Well, for me, food is never food in space. It's always food that has some person or group of people behind it. It came from somewhere. It grew in a particular way or was made in a particular way. And I always know that when, especially if it's a wonderful food, I want immediately to know how it was produced. Yeah, well, traceability for sure. But now Sunset, I quite enjoyed this. And I was reading this article about a big one block contest. Yes. So tell me about that. That was a really fun article. Is it in this issue? It is in that issue. April 2012. Yeah. Uh, we're going to give contact information on our uh, on the show's tags for how to subscribe to Sunset Magazine. But tell us about uh, the block party. Well, when the book came out, The One Block Feast... I thought it might be really fun to invite people all over the country, actually, to get together with their friends and neighbors and grow a block party (laughs) for the end of summer. And, you know, we sent out this invitation. I was worried no one would respond because it's not like sending in a Reader's Digest card, you know. And we got hundreds of submissions. We finally narrowed it down to 10 teams and they grew their parties all summer long last summer. And then we finally chose the winner at the end of the summer. But there's no real losers in this, no, right? Because everyone were no had their losers. own block party, I'm sure, in some way, shape, or form. And they all had a blast. The letters that I received were, you know, really, they meant a lot. They really did. And seven of the 10 teams have continued to grow food together hmm. long after. So I'm reading about, so the Dipmores, is that the... Well, this team was called the Beach Tractors because they okay. live in a neighborhood called the Beach Tract in Morro Bay. And um, the Dintmores were one of the families. It was eight families that got okay. together and did this. And uh, they did wild things. They raised 450 oysters on an oyster farm that they leased a little part of. I see them coming out of the water here. It's really fun pictures because, uh, yeah. again, the, this is what your book did and what it seems Sunset tries to do. It really gets people involved past Mm-hmm. Just uh, it's very you know, hands-on. A windowsill, you know, box. You know, this is a very mm-hmm. hands-on thing, and I see people coming out of the ocean here, you know, with bags of oysters. <laughs> so, did you go to the block party? Oh, I did. I went to as many of them as I possibly could. Three of them were on one day, so I had to choose. But, you know, these these people were amazing. They went so far beyond what we did. This particular group of people also made sugar. Oh, really. <laughs> Which is damn hard. Very hard. Well, tell us, how does one uh, get this book? Where can we find it? And how does one subscribe to Sunset Living in the West? Well, to subscribe to the magazine, it's simple to just go on sunset.com. And there are instructions there. And the One Block Feast is available, as they say, wherever books are sold. Mm -hmm. Very (laughs) nice. So, of course, we always support the independent booksellers, you know, versus Amazon. But, uh, you know. Thank you so much for coming in. That was really fun. Uh, we bumped into each other. Uh, you were here for an IACP conference. I That's was like, right. When are you going to be in the city next? So I'm really happy you could come into studio. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, Jack, any other news? Uh, no, more good shows on the way. Well, I've been asked to co-host the Mike and Judy show. Wow. So I'll be back. This is uh, I'm, I'm a real national treat uh, to get a full hour and a half of Patrick Martins. Just kidding. Anyway, well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Dorothy. Thanks to Hearst Ranch. Thanks to Jack Insley for producing. And we'll be back with another show in a few minutes. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.